0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Father, we do thank you for the way that you love us. So often we're more turned on and aroused by the things in our life, the circumstances of our life, our job, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, our wife, our husband, money, the promise of great, of greatness, power, prestige, comfort. These things have our heart more often than not. And I thank you for an opportunity to step into a body filled with people who claim to know you and They went from death to life through the power of your grace and through the power of the gospel and we get to sit in here and stand in here and worship the great God together. We don't come to be entertained. We don't come to get a fix. We come to join our voices with those who call and claim Christ and to worship the greatness of our God. Your love is everlasting. Your love is overwhelming. Your love is is the greatest thing that the world has ever seen. Your love is what we can rest in. Not our performance, not our accolades, not our education, not our job, not our money, not our retirement, not the opposite sex. Your love is the only thing that can give our souls rest. And I ask this morning that you would bring that rest that there would be a weightiness here, that this is different from the movie theater. This is different from a pep rally. This is different from a play. This is not entertainment. This is where the body of Christ communes with her gracious Father, where the body communes with the head, that the spirit of the living God is here, that you are breathing life into us. You are giving us the ability to see the beauty and the, and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I, I ask that there would be a weightiness here today, that there would be a sense of transcendence, a sense of the Almighty, that we we are busy people hurrying about with food and drink and sex, and we miss, we miss, oftentimes we miss what really matters in life, and we miss the eternal And I ask that you would give us eyes to see you and see your work today. Bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords, Father. Um, We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, If you are new at Sacred City, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Sacred City Church. Uh, We've been in church for now just about a year. We've had a a worship gathering um, for just over seven months. We started in January, right here in this theater, and God has blessed us, and we are um, we are excited to be here. It's been a heavy week this week. It's been a difficult week. There's been a lot um, a lot going on in our church. We say that um, we're more concerned with what goes on six days a week than one day a week, and that's this day. We are we love to gather, we love to worship God, um, but life is lived. In our homes, life is lived. In our jobs, life is lived in the city. So we seek to live out what God has done in us and what God is doing in us. We seek to live these things out in the context of normal life. And somebody say scary. Okay, that's, if you've grown up in church, that's scary for you. Because we've been trained and we've been taught to dissect our life into two forms, the sacred and the secular. This is who you are on Friday night. This is who you are on Sunday morning. This is who you are at home. This is who you are when you meet church people. This is who you are when you're reading your Bible. This is who you are when you're at the movie theater. And that itself is a failure to understand the greatness of our God, a failure to understand what God has done in Christ, failure to understand who God is and who we are. That we chose the name Sacred City to reinforce the fact that all of our life is sacred What you do at the theater, what you do on Friday night, what you do at the club, what you do at the bar, what you do at the job is just as important as what you do on Sunday morning. More so. More so. And if you've bought into the lie that God is okay with you living a separate life and then coming to church and maybe getting it checked off your list and then you can go sneak in the back door of heaven, you are are absolutely mistaken. Who you are is who you are doesn't matter what you do on Sunday morning. doesn't matter how much you give to the poor. It doesn't matter how, many, how much scripture you have memorized. It doesn't matter how much you serve. None of these things matter. What matters is, are you in Christ? Have you been grafted into the body? Have you been grafted into the vine? And no man, the early church fathers would say, no man has God as their father unless they have the church as their mother. What does that mean? That means if you're a part of the body, you're functioning within the body. It's not a place you show up. That is not church. Church is a body. Church is a people. Church is who we are. So this idea that I can just drop in and and go to church and hear a good sermon and walk out, and somehow that's the Christian life is sadly mistaken. C.S. Lewis says, and I kind of quoted him in my prayer, just kind of came to me as I was praying there. He says, we're foolish creatures fooling about with, with food and drink and sex. We're like a child playing in a mud puddle in the slums when its parents want to take him to a holiday at the beach. We're saying, I love this mud puddle. I love it. I don't want to go anywhere, Dad. I don't want to go anywhere. And God's like, uh, you haven't seen the ocean yet. And that's what our life is like when, we, when we're when we doing these Christian-like things without the power of the gospel, without understanding the purpose of God, without having our whole life renewed. There's so much more beauty and grace available. So we've been going over this. This is the last week in our DNA series. Typically, we just preach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, we finish up Ephesians. We're going to Genesis next. We're going to go verse by verse through the whole book of Genesis. Um, it's going to be really educational. We're going to learn about a lot about our faith, the foundation of our faith. We're going to talk about a lot of great things. It's narrative. It's going to be it's great. I'm really looking forward to it. But in this series, we're talking about what has God done through the gospel? Who has he made us? to be. And then because of what he's done and who he's made us into, how do we live? And we chose this setup for several ways. Number 1, the epidemic of our age, the epidemic maybe of any age, is that people would come into the body of Christ, they'd come in and gather with us, and what you would hear from me or what you'd hear from the pulpit, maybe it's not what's intended, but what's dissected and what you take home is, "Oh, okay, I need to go do that." Oh, I need to go act like that. I'm not a good Christian. I need to go act like a good Christian. And many of us, even those who are seasoned, even those who have embraced the gospel for a long time, can be wooed away from the foundation of the gospel and into our own works righteousness, into our own sanctification by our own effort, where we believe God's telling us to suck it up, to try harder, to do better. And that is not the gospel. And that is not freeing. That is legalism. That is a weight that feels like you can't carry it. And it's meant to feel that way. It's a burden. And Jesus comes to us and he says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And most of us, if we've been around the church for a long time, we have no idea what that looks like. So as we go through this DNA, what we're trying to say is, this is who, what, okay. I'm made a human, I walk, right? I'm made a human, my body digests, my body functions. I don't sit at home saying function kidneys now, right? It just happens. This is what God does for us in the gospel. He makes us into a new people. He transforms us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. We are dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2 tells us, and by grace he saves us through faith. He makes us come alive and then our kidneys start functioning, okay? He makes us come alive and then our spiritualness starts functioning correctly and we start, things start happening outward. He makes us into, we talked about, he makes us into family. That's one of the things he does. You don't have to try to be family. You are the family of God with God as our father and each other as our brothers and sisters. That's what God has done for us. He makes us into servants. Christ served us and showed us what that looks like. So we serve one another as a way of life. He's made us into missionaries sent to this city to renew all of creation for the glory of God, to partner in his work of redemption. We've been made into that. And lastly, we've been made into learners, disciples, people who long to um, learn and grow and mature and, and bring others along with us. And out of that identity of what God has done for us in the gospel flows natural rhythms, all right? We talked about three of those natural rhythms last week. We talked about celebrate. We talked about eating. We talked about listening. This is how the gospel takes your everyday life, turns it up on its head, and and sends you back out with a mission to do everyday normal things with gospel intentionality. So we listen with gospel ears as others tell their story. We listen to God both backward and forward as he leads us by his spirit and he teaches us in his word. We celebrate the launching of new missional communities. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate gathering on Sunday. We celebrate often because Jesus celebrated and brought the the better wine to the wedding. We celebrate often because we have a a reason to celebrate. And then we eat. We eat with non-Christians. We eat with Christians. We eat with neighbors. We eat with family. We eat with friends. We set aside time three to four times a week if we can to share meals with people outside the faith or outside our community of faith so that we can, sh- we can point them and we can take one step with them towards Christ, towards a life of dependence on God. All these rhythms are normal. They're timeless. Uh, we're not a, a new church that says, hey, here's some new things that God likes. They're normal. They're timeless. We've been doing these things for generations and generations. They're universal. They work in every context and culture. These rhythms should just naturally resonate with us as humans. They're normal. And can I tell you this? This is why I think we kind of sometimes can have like an aversion to them. Justin, give me something like supernatural to do. Give me something like bigger than you want me to eat with my neighbor. I I need something like that's got some magic in it. And we miss that God doesn't want to give you some supernatural hocus pocus Harry Potter life. He wants to be, why did he come down and get dirty and he put on flesh and he he walked among us? He was incarnated in human flesh because Jesus wants your normal. Jesus wants your struggle. Jesus wants your pain. Jesus wants the kid woke up at 3 a.m. Jesus wants that weakness. Jesus wants the real you not the polished version of you. So many of you 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 don't go to Christ in prayer and in communion and you don't read your Bible because you think when you get there he's going to say, "Why didn't you clean up first? Really? You could have put makeup on, right? Where's the church clothes? Why didn't you get yourself cleaned up? Why you come to me all like that? You got bad breath, sister." We think that God wants us to clean ourselves up and then come to him. I've met so many people that say, Justin, I, I wanted to come to the church. I want to come to the church, but I'm just trying to get some things worked out first. Backwards. Hey, doc, I, I really, I feel sick. I really want to come to you, but I'm really trying to f- get healed first. It's backwards. We come to him broken. The, only the broken, only the sick can come to him. Only the humble, only those destitute, only the poor in spirit. Those are the only ones he helps. Those are the only ones he has grace for. The ones who can, hey, Jesus, you need some help? You need some help with something? I'm a pretty talented dude. I got money, you know, I'm a real successful businessman. I can help you out, build some churches or something. Jesus doesn't need those guys. Now, as a humble businessman, he comes to him and lays his stuff. Yeah, of course. Human hands cannot serve our Father, God has everything he needs. So I think these, because these things are so fleshy, and I don't mean that in the sinful term, like sinful nature, because they're so natural, they're so normal, we we want something bigger. We want something more grand. We want something... I want to do a Billy Graham crusade. I feel called by God to do that. How about you invite your neighbor over for dinner? Let's start there. How about you peek your head over your cubicle at work And you smile at someone. Let's start there. The normal, the natural, this is where God wants to work in your life. The dirty. This is this is where it's so messy and beautiful at the same time. So today we're going to talk about the last two of these rhythms that we have at Sacred City. And they're called recreate and bless. Recreate and bless. So we had celebrate, we had eat, we had listen. And the last two we have is our recreate and bless. And I'm going to start with one of the simplest of our rhythms, and it's just bless. And I think most of us will probably get this, um, so I won't spend much time here. But in Genesis 12, and we're going to study this in depth when we go through Genesis. In Genesis 12, God, out of all the people of all the world, God looks down and chooses a man named Abraham, a pagan, idol-worshipping man named Abraham. And God says, "I I choose you, to bring salvation through your seed and through your family line, I'm going to choose you to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And out of Abraham, if you know your history, out of Abraham comes the nation of Israel. Out of the nation of Israel comes Jesus. Out of Jesus comes the church. And the reason that Christianity is where it is today is because of this one one man named Abraham, God chose him out of the people. And he said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. This is where the seed of Christianity was born. This is where you know, our family line can be traced back there in faith, through faith. And he says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle tells us to live our lives in such a way that people, even though they hate us, some people will just hate our message of the cross. They'll hate our message. It's foolishness to them. But live a life in such a way that they won't have an excuse the way you live. He's saying, I want you to live a life of blessing where people will hate you, but they can't excuse you. They might not agree with your theology. They might not agree with your religion, your Christianity. They might not agree with that. See it as narrow and bigoted and and whatever the the labels they want to throw on it. But live your life. Bless Others, I've blessed you, bless others in such a way that they'll be without excuse. See, God desires that all nations, all people would be blessed through Jesus. And now as his body, we believe that we live out this mission as we bless others. We intentionally seek God's direction for who he would have us tangibly bless. Listen to this. This is where I put flesh on it each week. We have received so much in Christ that our hearts naturally respond joyfully to bless others. I want you to think, if if you've ever asked this question, and this is a real question I think that you should ask. God, who do you want me to bless this week? And how can I do that? Who do you want me to bless this week? And how can I do that? Because we've received so much through grace We freely show that to other people Listen, when you bless someone This could be through flowers This could be a gift card This could be cash This could be dinner This could be drinks This could be tips This could be groceries This could be babysitting This could be encouraging words When you bless someone You're messing up their life Did you know that? I'm sure some of you people who, who like to earn things and you're hard workers, you know what it feels like to get a gift you didn't earn. Hey, just thinking of you, wanted to give you this. You're thinking, do I have something in the back I could trade right now? I've got something for you. I thought you were going to stop by just in case, pre-wrapped. right? It makes you feel awkward when people encourage you, or when pe- sometimes when or people bless you, or people just stop by to say hi, and I'm praying for you, and I love you. And here's this, and I think it's encouraged in the body of Christ typically for other Christians to do this, and that's great. But what if we lift up our eyes and we begin to do this for, like Jesus said, our enemies those who curse us, those who laugh at us, our neighbors who get frustrated with all the cars at our house every night for missional community, right? We go by and we bless them. Just say, hey, you know what? I'm sorry that we take up all the parking spots on Wednesday night. Here's a gift card. God bless, right? What does it look like when that waitress who we're freely justified by grace, right? Thank God that God does not look at me based on my works, but he looks at me in the works of Christ. But then when we get that waitress who doesn't refill the drink and brings the wrong order, I remember, you are judged by your works, girl, and you ain't getting a tip from me. What do you mean? 18% gratuity was included? Dang it. I really wanted to get this girl. When was the last time you gave a $20 tip? $50 tip? What would it look like? if we literally believed that we were justified by grace and every breath that we take is undeserved, that every one of us, because of a rebellion, because we seek to build our life on something other than Christ, every one of us deserves to be separated from God for eternity. What if we really believed that everything we had was a gift of grace? How freely would you offer that cigar? How freely would you offer that drink? How freely would you offer that round of golf? How freely would you offer whatever it is? How freely would you offer that if you really believed you were justified by grace? See, this is how our legalism gets in and twists us where we, yeah, I believe I'm justified by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. And then you live like a legalist six days a week. You judge everybody else based on their deeds, how they measure up. When we've been justified by grace alone, our hearts are melted and we become more gracious a man and i i remember last year um we have a garden and of course the way that i do things we didn't plant like this little cute little garden you know i took up half my yard uh, i figured hey i don't have to mow anymore this would be great we we planted a big garden we got all this stuff and then by the end of the season if you've ever had a garden this is our first attempt you realize how you don't even want to see another vegetable at the end of this thing like i've been put tomatoes on my everything right like you got tomatoes in your dessert, okay? It's just like, forget this thing. I'm tired of them. So they were literally c- coming in the house and just sitting on the counter and just rotting because we just couldn't handle it anymore, and the thing was just producing so much. So one night I said, hey, babe, let's, let's get the kids, and let's just throw a bunch of this junk in the back of this in the back of the wagon. And we took, all, we took all the leftover vegetables. We threw them in the back of my kids' wagon. We walked them up and down our street, and we put them in bags, and we walked them up there. And we said, good riddance, here you go. Now, the, the, I let Javin do it and we just said, hey, we wanted to bless you guys and we've got a lot of over, and we just want to give it to him. But that created, it like brought down the walls, it brought down the barriers, it created more of a relationship with us and our neighbors. How often or how in other ways could you do this? And this, is, this isn't like uh, so many times when you start talking about this stuff, we, cl- we click off and we go, yeah, that'd be really nice. I won't ever do it, that'd be really nice. And I think that's a gospel issue. I think that's our heart resisting grace. It's our heart wanting to like people that we want to like and love people that we want to love. And we don't want to bless the world. We don't want to bless our neighborhood. But what if you really believed that God made you into a missionary and he's the sovereign creator of all the world and he orchestrated your steps so much so that the house that you live in, he put you there. The job you're in now, he planted you there. The person in the cubicle next to you was placed there by God. The neighbor you have. Now, this will get you right here. The neighbor that frustrates you. Mm -hmm. Either the one that lets their grass grow to two feet tall and your kids get lost over there. Or the neighbor who mows every three days and makes you feel like a failure. I've got one of those, okay? Every day, I've got one of those. I look over, my yard looks like garbage. Right? What if God put that person strategically there for your sanctification? Strategically there for you to bless because you are a missionary sent by God to renew all of creation for the glory of God. What would that look like for you to tangibly bless someone each week? At the beginning of your week, Sunday night, you go home, you're having a time with Jesus, you're reading your Bible, you're writing in your journal, and you say, Jesus, who would you like me to bless this week? one of our rhythms. I'm not going to spend much more time on it. I think we get it. We bless others, both in the body and outside the body of Christ. We've been blessed, so we bless. The second one I want to spend a lot more time on because I think that the first one, we get it. Yeah, we should bless. I get it. God has done this in my heart, so I should respond. I get that. But this one might be a little unique. And the way we, we call it, recreate. Alright. Now the word recreate, you're gonna to go in to different places, but basically recreate is this. Recreate is a combination of rest and create. Rest and create. That's what we mean by recreate. Now and to, to make it simple, is this this is a tagline. We take time to rest, to play, to create, and restore beauty in ways that reflect God to others. This is gonna this was gonna be a little different for you, I think. Um, In Genesis, Moses tells us that in the beginning, God created. He spent six glorious days creating everything that exists. He is a designer's eye. He's an aesthetic. He appreciates beauty, and he doesn't create things solely out of a sense of duty. Thank God that he didn't have Ansel Adams' eye and create in black and white. God, for no apparent reason, created in color. God goes overboard with colors and design. The sun sets the same every night, but the colors of the sky are uniquely beautiful each night. I have fun watching Chris, our drummer. Um, Chris never gets tired of taking a picture of a sunset. Okay, every night his Instagram is the sunset. All right, and every night I'm like, Chris, you... oh, that's cool, Christy, you... oh. It's the sun setting over the bridge. Beautiful. Every night it's the same, but every night it's different. Do you ever ever sit and think about that? If you've ever watched Planet Earth HD on the Discovery Channel, you know that our great God is an artist who loves creating the most unique and stunning creatures. From glow-in-the-dark fish that have never seen the light of day to birds that are so overboard, they make Celo Green look like, you know, nothing, like, like he's shy or something, right? It's crazy. It might be the understatement of the universe to say that God is creative. He's the definition of creativity. He's the original artist. And because Scripture tells us that we're created in His image, we have a desire to create and restore beauty in unique ways as well. Those who sing, those who dance, those who write, those who act, design, paint or sculpt or create in any other way are participating in God-honoring work just as much as the work of the physician, the teacher or the other, or another professional. They've been given a gift and they're called by God to use their creativity To the glory of God They've been called by God And that doesn't mean I don't want to just put a stamp on this That doesn't mean that all their creativity Needs to have a Jesus sticker on it Doesn't mean that A guitar somehow A guitar solo Is more See this is where we really get into trouble Sacred and secular music Okay So one guy he's ripping on a guitar And somehow that is a Christian guitar solo. And another guy, it's to the devil. Right? That's a guitar solo to the devil. Right? An artist doesn't have to paint pictures of the Last Supper for it to be Christian art. See, I read an article this week that said, Art is the expression of the inward life of the artist. So the Christian, out of his gospel eye, he sees beauty, he sees his, the hand of his maker, he sees lines that are perfectly symmetrical, and, a, and he finds beauty in that, and he expresses that through art. And that's the beauty of God working inside of him, and he expresses it in art. It can come through poetry, it can come through l- lyrics, it can come through music, it can come through paint, it can come through woodworking, it can come through a million different ways. The scriptures instruct us to build, to decorate, to sing, to play instruments, to dance, and to do these things with with excellence. Being an artist is a high calling and a privilege. And at Sacred City, we desire for creativity in the arts to be promoted and highly valued. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean um, we're going to have dramas. I want you to hear that. Um, many times we think, oh, we want to be creative. We want to do this. That means we're going to rock it out on stage and we're going to have, you know, Jesus swinging in from the chandelier and, you know, something crazy up for Easter. And it, that doesn't mean we're going to have the, you know, the huge Christmas tree up here or something. That doesn't mean that we promote and we value artists hopefully there will, we will see some expressions of that in our body through the unique instrumentation of the band or um, through the stuff that 's going on in the screens or maybe through a set design someday maybe through that maybe happen but we want to be we want to promote the arts not in just in the church but in the city you know we 've got you know A j who 's not here today he 's on vacation but he 's a photographer and he had a display set up down at Bucktown and we got to go down there and just hang out and enjoy it with all the other artists and And it means we value the arts. We enjoy the arts. It doesn't mean that we have to somehow, you know, pimp them out from this stage, if you know what I mean, right? So we desire for creativity in the arts to be promoted and highly valued. This rhythm also includes things like restoration. One of the things that I enjoy doing, and my wife and I have done several times, is restoring older homes. And listen, anytime you take something run down, beat up, or ugly, and you restore it, you are actually showing people a picture of the work of the gospel. See, what's God doing? God is restoring all of creation. That's what he's doing right now. He's done it in Christ. And when Christ comes back, this whole earth will be restored and renewed. The restoration of a park, a home, or a neighborhood is a picture of what Christ has done in our hearts through the gospel, but it's also a picture of what God will do in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. This is why people love, and we got a guy, you know, out in Claire, they love to go find rusty gold, right? They love to go find old things and give them new life. People love to take old cars and, you know, drive around in these old muscle cars, Right? If it ain't got air conditioning, I don't want it. All right? That's that's my opinion. But we like to take old things and bring new life to them. And listen, why? Because that's what God has done in our heart. Our heart is desperately wicked. Our heart has failed us. Our heart is deceitful. And God, through Christ, has restored it. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new heart. It's a picture of what God does in the gospel. So the outflowing of that work of redemption in our heart flows out to our city. It flows out to our neighborhood. It flows out to our home. When we do these things, when we bring restoration to a neighborhood or a park, it's giving people literally a glimpse of what the gospel will do if they embrace Christ by faith. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Everything that is ugly, will be made beautiful. Everything that is marred will be spotless in the new heavens and the new earth. Creativity and beauty are theological issues. The thing with art, though, I mean, art and beauty can go bad. Just read the story of David and Bathsheba if you need a reminder of that. Okay, Art and beauty can go bad. But the thing about them is that no one appreciates them, until you actually take the time to slow down and look, and really look. And I want you to see this. Recreate, rest, create. God works six days in the beginning. He creates everything, and then he rests on the seventh. Theologically, we know, we understand God didn't get done with six days worth of speaking and go, oh, my back. I need to rest. God does not get tired. Unlike us, unlike our physical body that needs to sleep every night, God doesn't get tired. So God didn't rest because He had to, God rested because He wanted to. God sat back and enjoyed. His creation. God sat back and appreciated the handiwork of His creation. See, art and beauty go unnoticed or unappreciated without reflection. So God gives us a rhythm of rest. We can create and we can restore six days per week, but on the seventh, we're called to rest and enjoy God. When I used to build homes, uh, one of our favorite things to do would wrap the job up, back away, and just, oh, it's done. The work is finished. Enjoying the beauty of what we created. Enjoying the gift. Now, I want you to go, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the Ten Commandments. If If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments... Um, I want you to see how crucial rest really is. Not only does God show us through creation that he works six days and he rests one day, but when God brings the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage and he's giving them the Ten Commandments, he says to them right here, verse 12, when you're there, say there. Okay, let's read Chapter 5, verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a, look at that you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day okay now I could go into this a lot deeper Jesus kind of flips the Sabbath on its head a little bit in the New Testament when he says the Sabbath, um, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for the man. I want you to hear this right now. Why did God give man a Sabbath? God didn't give man a Sabbath just for practical reasons. Well, you know, they'll get gray hair if they keep working seven days a week or their wives really going to get angry with them. He gave them a he gave them this rest, not only because God rested himself and enjoyed creation. So he, give, he gives them that. There's a, there's a rest that allows us to enjoy. But right here in Deuteronomy, he says this. I want you to spend the Sabbath day and I want you to remember what God has done for you. Remember that you were in prison. Remember that you were a slave in Egyptian bondage. Remember that you had no hope and you were there for 400 years, your generations and generations, and that you were destitute. But by grace, by my gracious hand and my strong, powerful right hand, I redeemed you out of the curse. And you need, listen to this, this is crucial. You need reflection. You need rest in order to remember. busyness saps your memory. I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. I got this coming up. I got that coming up. I got, you forget how faithful he is. You forget how you're saved by grace. You forget where he's brought you from. You forget how faithful he's been to you. Why? Because you're not resting. You're not remembering. You're not Sabbathing. If I say anything today that you hear, I hope you hear this. And this is a, this is a gospel bomb. I'm just going to tell you that. This is a gospel bomb. And it might, it might be a smart bomb that goes with you and blows up later in the week. That's fine. Or it might get you right now. How well you are resting from your work is a barometer to tell you how well you actually believe the gospel. Did you hear me? How well you are resting and remembering from your labor is a barometer that tells you how well you believe the gospel. Why? Because we are all cursed, guys. We are cursed with the idea that the world will not make it without us. Our families will fail. This church will fail. Our businesses will fail. We have got to keep going. And a day of rest causes us literally to say, God, I am not God. You are, and I push all that weight and all that responsibility back on you. And I remember how you've never let me down, how the world's kind of been spinning for a long time and you're kind of actually pretty good at that. And it doesn't revolve around me. That my kid's salvation doesn't rest on me. That the missional community going well doesn't rest on me. That the business succeeding doesn't ultimately rest on me. I take a day and I say, God, you are sovereign and in control and I can't manage everything. It was Augustine who said in the first pages of his confessions that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Our hearts are never satisfied until they're satisfied in Him. Listen to this quote by one of my favorite theologians and philosophers, James Smith. He's a professor and blah, 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 so you'll get it. In my darker, more Pascalian moments, I wonder if I immerse myself in 101 Christian projects precisely in order to forget that I don't desire God all that much. Sometimes all of our work and busyness undertaken with the passion of a vocation is just a cover for the fact that we prefer the comfort of ministry pursuits instead of the disruptive encounter with the triune God. I would rather be busy than talk to God and let Him mess me up. I have plans, Jesus. I got to pick the kids up and I got to do this and I got to do that. And if you come in and you blow my heart up and you make me think about something, you, you remind me of something, you remind me of a sin or you remind me of your grace and you give me some kind of emotional response, that will make me less productive. That is in my way. He goes on to say, when we become, when we become consumed with our work, whatever that might be. And listen, even, and especially, I'm going to add, especially if it's noble, if it's holy and just, we unwittingly fall back into the autonomous dreams of our own making. And this is where he drops a bomb. When we spurn rest, we spurn grace, and we reject God's gift to us. When we fail to rest and reflect, We are saying to God, don't, I got this. I got this. Oh, what do I got to do? Put my big boy pants on. I'll work 80 hours a week. Oh, what do we got to do? I'll get another job. Oh, I'll suck it up. I'll wake up at four. I'll stay up till 11. When we spurn rest, we reject grace. We're believing the lie that Adam and Eve believed. We're autonomous. we can got to make our own world. One of the most beautiful fruit of the gospel in the life of the Christian is rest. There's a comfort in pushing back and saying, God's got this. I get to enjoy my family today. I get to remember the gift that God's given me in Christ today. I get to not set the alarm today. Personally, I try to have Fridays as my Sabbath. I obviously work on Sundays, so my family and I choose to rest and remember on Fridays. And one of the things I've discovered in my own soul is my Fridays are more important than every other day of the week for me. With my relationship with Jesus, my Fridays are more important than even what I'm I'm probably doing today. Honestly, it's where I remember. It's where I God coaxes me out of this mentality that everything relies on me. Where I walk around six days a week carrying the burden of so many things, thinking that, oh, if I just get the right idea and if I just have enough wisdom, I can figure it out and I can manage it and I can put all the cogs in the machine and everything will flow smoothly and everything will be. Ha- everybody will be happy. If I just do it right, and on that, on that Friday, on that Sabbath, God removes me from that. And it's a gracious thing. And he says, people will be happy? <laughs> really? You really believe that? Do you remember my ministry? Do you remember my son? Did he make a lot of people happy? No, he didn't. Yeah, he's made millions happy, but he's made millions angry as well. And he's got it. God's got it. God cares more about your family than you do. God desires more for your children than you do. He's gracious and he's a loving father. I've had to confront the, the, the truth in my soul that it's harder for me to shut my phone off and rest than it is to strive and it is to study than it is to work and counsel. It's harder for me to rest. In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we read earlier, um, as our call to worship, Psalm 95. And the book of Hebrews is basically an exposition of Psalm 95. He's going verse by verse through Psalm 95 and he's teaching um, on it. And he says that he's talking about Sabbath and how there still remains a Sabbath that we still need to rest. But ultimately, our rest is found in Christ. Ultimately, our rest is not found in our home, is not found in three hours of escapism at the dark night. Our rest is found in Christ ultimately. But he says this word and it's, it's crazy. He says, I want you to strive to enter that rest. All right, listen. Work hard to rest. And he's the writer is getting to this point of resting is not easy. If you're a producer, now listen, hey, if you're lazy, this this is just not for you, okay? I'm going to tell you that right now. This is just not for you. This is not, I've been telling my mom for 18 years, I'm just resting, mama. I'm on a Sabbath, okay? No, it's one. Six days, and then we take one, all right? Six days, take one. Some of you... J-O-B, all right? That's the word for you today. But for other, everybody else, some other people that are working too much, you know, I'm sound, the writer of Hebrews says this, strive, work hard, fight to rest. The culture, the society, everything will press in on you and say, you have to earn your identity. You have to prove your worth to the world. And the only way to prove your worth is by outworking your neighbor. As a good wrestling coach and growing up, everyone always say, hey, what's your opponent doing right now? Right? Every Friday night, you're having a pop, but your opponent ain't drinking a pop. On a Sunday, you want to go to church, but you're so, he ain't going to church. He's running right now. He's on the road somewhere. And they build this mentality into you that you always have to be working. You always have to be performing. You always have to be outworking somebody because somebody else is going to get what you want. That is anti-gospel absolutely anti gospel god says rest and let me take care of it hebrews says that anyone who enters god's rest rests from his work and his labor just like god rested for his from his how well can i ask you a question you're probably dreading how well do you rest How well do you rest? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know you don't have time. You have too much to do. You have projects upon projects and way too much stuff to get done. Listen, do you, listen to me. You, the how? I get it. All right. I have, every time I walk by stuff in my house, I've got projects. I see them. God gave us this grass to keep growing every week. You have to do... It's never done. Are your kids ever clean? My kids are clean for eight seconds after a bath. Okay? Literally. Continually have to wash them. Continue have to clean up after them. My work is never done. I clean my garage. I don't know what happens. A week later, my garage needs cleaned again. Right? You finish a project at work. Oh, you almost you're about to say awesome. Your boss drops another project on you. Great job. Here's three more Right, you don't have I get it. I don't have time to rest. Justin That's a dream world. Boy, oh, it'd be really nice You know in la-la land probably when the bible was written, you know several thousand years ago They probably had time to rest back then but today in today's day and age. We just don't have time to rest. Justin That's a you know, that's a leisure that, that would be really nice, but that's not reality Listen, you're completely right. You want to know why? Because you are not God. Have you ever thought about that? You know who the only one who gets his work done every day is? God. Everyone else goes to bed at night with things undone. Every person on the planet, from the tribes in Africa to the high rises in New York City, every person in the world goes to bed with things undone. Only God. Only God gets his work done and then can rest. So for those of you who've been telling your spouse, on as soon as I get through this project at work. Soon as I get through this tough season. Soon as our kids get in school. Soon as, soon as soon as, soon as soon as it's a lie. I know you don't mean it to be a lie. Solomon says it's like chasing the wind. Your striving never ceases. It'll never be enough. You'll never be finished. Our work will never be finished until we take our last breath. I was reminded of that this week. God calls us to rest, not after our work is done, but in the midst of our unfinished work. In the midst of rebellious teenagers, in the the midst of difficult family situations, in the midst of big projects, in the midst of bills that are overwhelming, He calls us to rest. In the beginning of starting a new business, he calls us to rest and say, I can't handle it, God. You've got this. I was reminded of this this week as I was sitting at the deathbed of an ex-UFC fighter. 285 pounds, strapping man. Dwindled down to 140 pounds through Cancer. Many of you were here when we prayed for Sherman about six weeks ago. We're sitting there. And I know I'm talking to a man whose minutes, days, hours from eternity. And he said, Justin, first off, he said, when you called me up there to pray and all the men laid their hands on prayed for me, that was awesome. That was awesome. And I'm sitting there and he's, it's so weird because you know his time is short, but he's planning. Hey, when, when I get out, I want this apartment, I'm going to do this. I want to have a two-bedroom apartment because I want to be able to let people that want to fight and people want to do, he was a fighter, people that come to the gym, I want them to be able to stay with me for free. His work's not done. None of our work's ever done. And all the things that we cherish in life, in front of me, he's signing them over. I want this person to have my car. I want this person to have my... None of it matters. None of it matters. Friday morning, Sherman entered into God's ultimate rest. And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there with him. And I was struck by how our constant busyness keeps us from moments like this. Keeps us from being present in moments like this. In all honesty, I didn't have time to be there. I had projects and homework due. I had an MC celebration that was scheduled that I was supposed to be at. I had a sermon to prepare. But guess what? None of those things matter in this moment. Solomon, the man who got everything, the man who you wish you were. Well, some of us do. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He had more sex than you, let's just say it. He had more stuff than you. He was the richest man to ever live. And he said, It's better for people to hang out in funerals than it is weddings because it reminds them what's coming. It reminds them what's important. And I think we do a lot of our, we live a lot of our life trying to avoid suffering, trying to avoid weakness, trying to avoid funerals. Sitting in that hospital room with Sherman was a gift. Not only did I get to see a man put all of his weight on Christ and trust God to embrace him into eternity, but I was reminded myself how there will come a day for every single Christian where we will cease from our labor. We work hard six days and one day we rest and that points us to our ultimate rest. We spend our life striving and raising kids and loving spouse and serving the church and serving the city but one day is coming where we will cease from that and like a a paratrooper who jumps out of a plane and puts all of his weight into that parachute and trusts that parachute completely we will lean into Christ and put all of our eternity on him. And Sherman could look me in the face and and say, that's where I'm headed. I'm a man of God. He doesn't trust. He didn't trust in being a good man. He was a good man. He was a nice guy. People loved him. But that's not where his confidence comes from. Confidence comes from this. If a man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And soon when Christ comes back, Sherman will have a new body. A body that will never be touched by cancer. No weakness, no frailty. And we mourn for him, but it's a gift. He's resting from his labors. He's resting from his striving. He's enjoying the grace, the unadulterated grace of Jesus Christ, the presence of the almighty God. He's enjoying it. This rest that God calls us to points back to creation. This is how we were built. Work six days, rest one day. But it points forward to the new creation where everything will be restored. 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 Rest. These two rhythms, bless and recreate, can be a powerful witness to a watching world of the beauty of the gospel. In a self-obsessed, greedy, world, people who freely bless others, can be like a sign point, signpost pointing to Jesus who gave his very life as a blessing for others. If you bless people, it, it just feels weird. People will know there's something different if you give past the point of it hurting you. And you give to people who curse you or lie about you or maybe just look at you funny or maybe hide from you your neighbors when you bless them it's an overflow of what Christ has done in you they can't categorize you he's just a conservative he's just a liberal he's just a church guy he's just conservatives don't bless liberals liberals don't bless conservatives conservatives In the gospel, we bless everyone. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. In a culture that never sleeps, where work comes home with us through our emails and through our text messages. Technology promised us ease. It promised us simplicity. It promised us that we could get more done. It's lied to us. The work is never done. in a culture that never sleeps a people who know how to rest and reflect well on god and what he's done what he's done for us in christ they can show their neighbors they can show their coworkers they can show their boss they can show their church friends and family they can show their children a deeper rest that is only available through the gospel i don't rest son because my work is done I rest because his work is done. We take the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper, every week to remind us that his work is completed. He hung on the cross and he died for us and he said, It is finished. Not, I did my part, you do yours. It is finished. On the cross, Jesus consumed our sin and he consumed our shame. He bore the weight of all of our restlessness. Just stay busy so I don't remember how much I don't desire God. Stay busy so I don't remember that I have a hole in my soul that I'm avoiding him. Stay busy so I don't feel broken and I don't feel weak and I don't feel lost. Jesus bore that restlessness on the cross and he offers us rest. He offers us rest today through grace and by faith. And I plead with you as your sinful pastor who struggles on a weekly basis to fight for rest, to fight to believe the gospel that my identity is not founded how much I accomplish and how much I get done and how well I please everyone. I plead with you today, turn from that sin and turn to Jesus Christ. He offers you rest. Men would come who are going to prepare this morning, who are going to serve our, our meal. I ask you to do heart work in your seats. I ask you to search your soul. I ask you to turn in faith to Christ. Husbands, if you've been terrible at this, I ask you to confess that to your wife, wives. If you've been terrible at this, I can ask you to confess that with your husbands. Do the hard work. Father, we don't want to take this body and drink this cup unworthy. And we are all unworthy. But to take this in an unworthy manner would mean we take it lightly. Means we don't search our heart. We don't repent and place our faith again in Christ. We maybe walk with a swagger to the communion cup. And any of us who can see correctly, any of us who've been given the gift to see rightly through your spirit, we see our sin. We see our tendencies to self-justify. We see our workaholism and we call it care for our family. We call it diligence, but it's just avoidance. We don't want to admit that we're restless. Jesus, you are our rest. And we turn from our labors, our striving ceases, and we accept this gift by grace. Thank you. On the night you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. We are not judged by our works. Those of us who are in Christ have been given the gift of the righteousness of God in Christ. grant rest to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.